according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 14, backing up slightly to the final verses of John 13. If you know what I mean. John 14 is technically where we're starting today, but we will grab a few verses in context in order to uh, set the table properly for where we need to be. Starting a new episode today, episode 23, in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Last speech to the apostles and intercessory prayer. Last speech to the apostles and intercessory prayer. And basically, we're talking... Chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the Gospel of John. And so one episode is going to have four chapters worth of uh, material. You can expect we're probably going to be here for a while. Uh, and in fact, it may take us a while just to uh, establish the context, to demonstrate conclusively that this is a church age passage of Scripture, that this portion of the Gospel of John is uh, directly applicable by the church, the royal family of God. And it's uh, something we want to be very clear on dispensationally uh, so that we make the proper and appropriate applications. Also to where we can uh, contrast this with the Olivet Discourse, which is not for the church. And we're very adamant about that. We're very forceful about that. People who try to put the rapture in Matthew 24, for example, are wrong when they do so. And uh, failing to recognize the uh, audience of Israel in uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is a huge problem. And uh, people that try to uh, see the church in passages that the church is not there is a problem. Well, the church is here. And we have to understand, how can we, are we hypocrites? How can we say the church is not there in Matthew 25, but it's here in John 14? Uh, what, what tells us, what gives us the right to, to try to have our cake and eat it too? To have it both ways, as it were. All right. You understand I'm, I'm reflecting in these comments the criticism that uh, that you will receive. And if you have not yet already, you will in the future <laughs> when you try to get a non-dispensationalist to think dispensationally. When you try to get a covenant person, a replacement theology person, even worse, uh, to who's who's just absolutely insistent of, on seeing the church. In Matthew 24 and 25, the church is not in the Olivet Discourse. And, and when, you, when you try to force the church in there, you end up with no shortage of issues. So um, it seems like you can get somewhere with them, maybe to a point, saying, you know, the church doesn't start till Pentecost, and it's in a mystery form, it's not revealed until the Holy Spirit descends. Um, and then you get them to finally accept the fact that it, the, the Olivet Discourse is not for the church. Great until you get to the upper room discourse, all right? Then you get to the upper room discourse and you try to show them that now this is a rapture passage in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. When I come back, I will receive you to myself. And, they, and then if they remembered what you told them back in Matthew 24 and 25, they might get livid with you and angry and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The church doesn't start until Acts chapter 2. Uh, this can't be the church. This has to be Israel. And they go on and on and on. Stop, slow down, relax, okay? I'll show you from the text why it is that we take this differently. Why it is that something is being addressed here that pertains to the church, but is still mystery until Acts chapter 2, all right? And that's part of what we're going to address here today. So, 
Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are in fact filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your precious promises that are yes and amen in Christ. We thank You, Father, for the delight that we have to be able to study to show ourselves approved and for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Father, who guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. Father, we're excited on this day because as a grace provision, we're able to redeem this uh, for Your good pleasure, for the glory of Your Son. We're not uh, going to try to understand these things in our own human wisdom or understanding. We are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to guide us into these into these truths. And we're excited, Father, to think of the blessings we're going to have as we focus upon Christ and, and the homes that He's gone to prepare for us. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to this truth. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Wonderful chapter that starts with, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This uh, portion of the Upper Room Discourse is, uh, contains the sixth and seventh of the great I Am messages that are uh, communicated through the Gospel of John. Uh, we will have uh, the sixth I Am message we just read there, the way, the truth, and the life from John 14.6. It will be followed in chapter 15 with the I Am the Vine. Uh, so we have the sixth and the seventh of John's seven uh, I Am passages. Now, as we back up, though, we need to understand the, the context for this. It's, we're a little bit hampered in the, in the format of what we're doing as a harmony, that we are uh, blending Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and trying to get a chronological sequence. Uh, but John, in authoring this gospel 50 years after the events, John is, uh, is very much uh, taking us through a progression from chapter 13 into chapter 14 and following. So we do want to, under point one, we do want to review the points of study from John 13. So in your outline under point one, the points of study from John 13, 31 through 38, should be reviewed before proceeding to this, uh, this particular episode. The points of study from John 13, 31 through 38, should be reviewed before proceeding to John 14, verses 17 through 26. In other words, we want to review your notes from episode 21. Episode 21. In between, we've had episode 22, we've had communion. We've had the Lord's uh, introduction of, of the, uh, the Last Supper, uh, the Lord's Supper. And uh, because the Gospel of John does not include the communion material, uh, in John's Gospel, it's, it's a very uh, sharp, or it's a very immediate transition from chapter 13 to chapter 14, and he wrote it that way on purpose. So we don't want to lose sight of how he was ending chapter 13 or we will, I think, be, be uh, hamstrung in our right understanding of chapters 14 and 15. 
and 16 and 17 for that matter. The whole thing. We need to understand that this is a church passage and why is it a church passage comes as Judas Iscariot departs. As, as the adversary departs, he says, what you do, do quickly. And he walks out and immediately then we have this, this uh, transition. Now, um, I didn't actually go back. Well, I did, but I decided not to repost those uh, notes here. Uh, there are more uh, notes, points of study in episode 21 than you're going to get here this morning. I synthesized it down into basically three overall points, an A, B, and a C. And, uh, and I'll list those for you here in just a moment. But let's look at verse 31, backing up to chapter 13 and looking at verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, at this time, because of Judas's departure, this is the, the um, recognition that, he has, that the unbeliever is now gone. All that he has left on this night in which he's betrayed, all that he has left with him is his 11 believing apostles. These apostles that are apostles of the Lamb. They're going to be, and perhaps even Matthias was here that night. We don't know. But uh, the 11 are definitely here. And they're in the upper room. And he's teaching them what they're going to need after he's gone. All right. And very quickly, of course, what happens tomorrow? He goes to the cross. What happens in three days? He rises again. What happens 40 days after that? Or 50 days? Uh, he, he ascends. Ten more days after that? Pentecost. All right. And so very quickly, we're within two months of the church starting and the disciples don't know anything about that. <laughs> OK, nobody does because the church is a mystery. But the disciples must clearly be wondering what is the ministry going to be like after Jesus is gone. And this is what he's preparing them for preparing them for his departure, telling them actually that it's to their advantage that he goes away. We're going to get into these things when we get into chapter 14 and 15 and 16, how having the Holy Spirit coming, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father is the greatest blessing humanity has ever had. That our church age position is unbelievable compared to what came before. But they don't have a concept for any of that. All right. And uh, in large respect, um, they have not had the, 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 uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in their life the way that they could have had, the way that he was urging them to have. He's finally going to breathe on them to receive the Holy Spirit, and then uh, they're going to get the, the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. In any event, let me, let me get back to what I'm reading here. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, and he is, God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And we had some points when we were studying this and it was related to immediate glory. And we want to we want to keep immediate glory, the idea of immediate glory in our thinking as it relates to what Jesus is is giving his disciples here on this night. And as it relates to you and I today in the dispensation of the church. The idea of immediate glory. So the Son of Man is glorified. God the Father is glorified in Christ. In Him, meaning in Christ. Alright? And these are some of the things that we want to, if we don't grasp it all today, at least chew on it. At least put it on the back burner, let it simmer a little bit and consider 
that this is something that we ought to uh, think about when we consider positional truth. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does that mean in Christ? If we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, what does that mean? And we understand so much of our church age position is what we identify with being in Christo, in Christ. That is, in Christ we have access to the Father. It's in Christ our sins are forgiven. It's in Christ that we have our spiritual gift. It's in Christ that we have this whole portfolio of assets. There's something here that this passage deals with that maybe we don't often, I don't often include in positional truth, but maybe we better start. That the position of in Christ includes glory to God the Father. Immediate glory to God the Father. And maybe we don't think about it because immediate glory to God the Father is part of his portfolio of assets, not our portfolio of assets. But it is connected to this position of being in Christ, in him and so something to uh, to chew on in the in the days and weeks ahead. Now, the son of man is glorified and God the Father is glorified in him in the glory of God the Son. And it goes on, if God the Father is glorified in him, this is assumed to be true, God the Father will also glorify him in himself. And this is where having color codes might be helpful, <laughs> right? Which of the hymns are the Father and which of the hymns are the Son and, and so forth. But if God the Father is glorified in Christ, God the Father will also glorify Christ in Father. You see that? All right. We'll also glorify Christ in Father. Now that is a depth of teaching. All right. That is a depth of teaching because we we that we have to recognize, well, do we have an approach to that as well for us in the church? Of course we do. If if Jesus Christ is glorified in father and we are baptized in union with Jesus Christ, then what does that mean about us? That means we also are glorified in father. Right. OK. So far as we in Christ glorify the father. Okay? So it's reciprocal is what we're saying, what these verses are saying. It is reciprocal. It is father and son fellowship. It is father and son good pleasure. It is father and son glory. That we're glorifying the father as we glorify the son. That we're glorifying the son as we glorify the father. And this is what they are pleased to do one with another. And we partake in that in Christ. Okay? Now... <laughs> Would an Old Testament believer have any clue about any of that? Not a clue. Not a clue. An Old Testament believer who does not have our frame of reference for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or positional truth or mystery doctrine unveiled in, in Ephesians. And to be fair, you and I this morning would not understand these verses this way if you and I did not have a framework for Ephesians and for New Testament doctrine, okay, for church-age truth. If, 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 I, if I was to try to put myself back in, in a, an Old Testament mindset, this would be unbelievable to me. Even the idea of immediate glory would be unbelievable. Immediate glory? The, the Old Testament never deals with immediate glory. Glory is always down the road. Glory is always later. Glory, you know, glory will happen then. 
You know, the kingdom is later. The coming of Messiah is later. The uh, glory of heaven and resurrection is later. The glory of, of, uh, of uh, second advent, that's all later. It's all later. It's all later. It's all later. All of Israel's eschatology is then. Okay, we'll have glory then. The idea of immediate glory now to the Father and the Son and to us, it's uh, transformational. All right. Then he says, verse 33, little children... I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I am also saying to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now he told the Jews that because he was going to heaven and they're unbelievers. Why is he telling his disciples this? They are believers. So why is he telling them they can't, they can't come to heaven with him? Okay, well, it's because there uh, is coming a time that the head will be in heaven, but the body will be on earth. And he, if you, it's not really fair to leave uh, verse 33 all by itself saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. When you glance down to um, verse 36, you see where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. So connect verse 33 to verse 36, and you see the, the, the whole story on that. He's not telling Peter that he'll never go to heaven ever, but he is saying that it's not now, it's not immediately, that there is a time in which the disciples are going to operate with their head in heaven and the body on earth. All right. And so a new commandment I give to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, all of this is new. None of this is found in the Old Testament. None of this is found. You know, they had 10 commandments. Is this commandment 11 now? What is this? You know, they had 613 commandments in the total Mosaic Code. Is this 614 now? What is this? And what is this mutual, reciprocal, agape, integrity, love? As I have loved you, so also you love one another. You know, the, uh, the idea of the Old Testament was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. But to have this reciprocal love for one another in such a way that the unbeliever observes it? That's not in the Old Testament. And when it comes down to this, my disciples... Prove to be my disciples. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. When you, when you study all of the Old Testament Christology, go get a Fruchtenbaum book or something, right? Go get a, a, a book on Old Testament Christology. Uh, and they had countless promises related to the Messiah. That he'd be a son of David, that he'd be king, that he'd be priest, that he'd be prophet. That, I mean, all these... Thousands of verses, thousands of prophecies related to Messiah. What was the, where was the, the promise that Messiah would gather disciples? That there would be a body of people that would prove to be Messiah's disciples? It's not there. That's not a, that's not a em, emphasis of the Old Testament. You know, they want Messiah to come so he can be their king, so they can throw off the Gentiles, so they can rule the world and have a kingdom. If they were spiritually minded, they wanted Messiah to come so the serpent's head could be crushed, so that sin could be removed. <laughs> but Messiah to come that they could be disciples? 
What, what is this disciple thing, right? So we're dealing with a context that is different than any Old Testament believer would have any frame of reference to deal with. That becomes important. Now, could you imagine what would happen? <laughs> pretend, again, pretend you don't have Ephesians. Let's, let's pretend there is no church. What would be the plan of God if there is no church? In other words, if God does not place a partial hardening on Israel, if the stewardship remains Israel's stewardship after the ascension and session of Jesus Christ, what would the stewardship be like if... It just continued on as Israel's stewardship. What would, what would, it's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? All right. What, you, know, you could imagine the disciples of Jesus Christ would be kind of left wondering, uh, what do we do now? <laughs> you know, in fact, since the bulk of them are all Judeans, they, they'd have nothing they could do. They'd be, they'd be retired. They'd be out of the ministry. What else is there to do at that point if the church doesn't start on Pentecost? All right. Is it getting too cold in here? I think so. All right. We've got to reprogram those. We, people were grumbling two weeks ago that it was too warm. So we adjusted the programming on Sundays and Wednesdays. All right. Well, we'll adjust it again. Um, in any event, not grumbling. Okay. What are the three main points we want to glean out of this before we can move on? Subpoint A. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father. Right, let me hold on. I want to finish the thought I was getting to a moment. I'm sorry. If there is no church, these Judeans are just kind of stuck. James and John and I mean Peter and Andrew... They're not Levites. They're not priests. You know, what are they going to do? Are they going to, are they going to become Bible teachers? They didn't, go to the, they didn't go to the rabbinic schools. Their rabbi just got executed. So that's kind of rough on their credentials, <laughs> right? If they were going to become rabbis. You know, what are they going to do? So the idea that he's now giving them this encouragement, let not your heart be troubled, and he's giving them this message in the upper room after the, the betrayer departs, as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's giving them this whole wealth of things that, frankly, doesn't make sense to them tonight. But it will make sense to them 50 days from now. When the Holy Spirit descends, when they start to adjust to church-age thinking, when mystery doctrine is revealed to them, they're going to be able to think back and connect it to John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Okay? And that's what we're going to see here in a moment. All right. So what are the points of study from John 13? First of all, sub-point A. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father establishes the glorification of the Son of Man and the glorification of God the Father in Christ. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father establishes the glorification of the Son of Man and the glorification of God the Father in Christ. 
Not only is it introduced here in chapter 13, it's going to get built upon in chapter 14 and in chapter 17. It's going to be built upon in the New Testament epistles, particularly Peter in 1 Peter 4. I think it's, it's the uh, um, rest of the story and the kenosis development of Philippians chapter 2. We think of Philippians chapter 2 is that he humbled himself. Yes, he humbled himself. But what's the rest of the story? Because he humbled himself, he receives a greater glory than he ever had before his incarnation. Why is the cross so pivotal in producing glory for God? We've got to quit being human-centric. We've got to quit thinking that it's all about us. That Jesus died on the cross, we get eternal life, hooray for us. Okay, it's, it's not about us, it's about Him. It's about the obedience of the Son to the Father. Behold, I come to do your will. And it's about the greatest act of infinite obedience. For the greatest pleasure of the, in, for the greatest infinite pleasure of the Father. For the greatest infinite glory of the Son. And because of the glory of the Son to the pleasure of the Father, it's the glory of the Father when you think it through. Alright, so again, point A. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father establishes the glorification of the Son of Man and the glorification of God the Father in Christ. So what these verses are dealing with and Verses 31 and 32, and it relates to us in the church age. Now, you'll notice it's not only these verses, but when we cross into chapter 14, we see, uh, and we'll deal with this, in verse 13 it says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now notice, this is, he's talking about in the future, whatever you ask in my name. You know, after I'm gone, after I'm in heaven, after you're learning to, to operate in a, in a circumstance with, with Messiah in heaven, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So this idea of glorifying the Father in glorifying the Son is not just a feature of this night in which he's betrayed, but it will it will extend into the church age for you and I to make application. All right. Likewise, in chapter 17, in his prayer to the Father, he says, I glorified you on the earth. How? Having accomplished the work you have given me to do. Again, we have Jesus Christ glorifying God the Father. Now, is that over or is he still doing that? He's still doing that. That's right. Because Christ is in us here today. His body, His bride is on earth today. And Christ in you, the hope of glory, as we are occupied with Christ and doing the work God the Father has sent us to do, what are we doing? We're glorifying the Father in glorifying the Son. See how this connects? Alright, we're saved unto good works which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we get glorified so that our Father is glorified, that He's glorified in the Son, that He's glorified in Christ. Okay? You realize how unique the incarnation is. The Father was at work in Jesus, both the willing to do of His good pleasure for the first time ever in human history. 
For the first time ever in human history, Jesus Christ walked this earth for three and a half years of public ministry, glorifying the Father, giving the Father's messages, doing the Father's miracles, accomplishing the Father's work, accomplishing the Father's good pleasure. Just one guy in the history of the world, right then and there. And he did it perfectly. And ascended to the Father and seated at the Father's right hand. Now what's, he, what's the Father doing? The Father's doing that now thousands of times over, millions of times over, with every born-again believer in the body of Christ. It's the Father at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's an unbelievable thing. Christ is the prototype of what we're fulfilling day by day. So, Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Well, we'll get into that. I love that prayer and we'll spend a lot of time in that prayer coming up. But it's not just on this night that this doctrine is applicable. He's teaching his disciples about what they can expect after he's gone. After they have to carry on in some kind of a ministry with him in heaven. All right. Now, he's not spilling the beans on the church. He's not ruining the mystery of the church. He's not flat out revealing here explicitly that they're going to be uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit into union with him and neither Jew nor Gentile will be a New Testament written in the Greek language. He's not revealing any of that. And likely, as an Old Testament prophet, he doesn't know any of that. All right, But he is being given this information to at least foreshadow the mystery of the church preparing them to, to continue on after his departure. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. And it's interesting, I find, that Peter was selected to write this because I think Peter was among the most clueless in John 13. <laughs> right? He's, he's telling them that he's going to go and Peter's saying, no, over my dead body and... Jesus saying, no, no, it's my dead body. And <laughs> All right. First Peter 4.11. We're used to this. This is our spiritual gift passage, right? How many times have we seen this? But we don't always read the end of this verse or think it through. It says in verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. So I use my pastor teacher gift to serve you. You use your gift to serve everybody else. We all, we all serve one another. Our gifts are not about us. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But then it goes on to explain this even more. It says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So I get that. We've got speaking gifts. We've got serving gifts. But don't stop the verse there. So that, purpose clause, why is it that the body of Christ has these gifts? So that in all things, God the Father may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's for the glory of the Father in Christ. That's identical to what we saw in John 13. And it's immediate. If He is glorified in the Father, then God Himself will glorify Him in Himself. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right. So when we function as a body, as we're supposed to, 
as a body of gifted believers serving one another, ministering to one another, doing so not because your sister deserves it. She probably doesn't. Not because your pastor deserves it. He definitely doesn't. We serve and we use our gifts and we minister. All of this is because Christ deserves it. He is worthy. We're serving Him. Through Him we're glorifying the Father. It just breaks the heart when believers uh, gauge their um, enthusiasm in ministry based upon, well, what have they done for me lately? And, uh, you know, have they earned it? Have they deserved it? See, well, <laughs> the moment you go to that earn and deserve thing, you departed from the realm of grace. Grace uh, serves regardless of what we've earned and deserved. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. And as I said, we're accustomed to Philippians 2 in the Kenosis passage. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. Yes, he did. And uh, we're to have that same attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus in verse 5. Of course, I get that. He humbled himself. I need to humble myself. If I'm not humbling myself, I'm not an imitator of Christ. But it doesn't stop at verse 8. Yet all this humility here as he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It is the ultimate in infinite expression of humble obedience. And what results from that? Verse 9. For this reason also. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. It's because of the cross that this glory is achieved. It's because of the cross that he's eligible for a glory he was not eligible before. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Even Satan and the fallen angels and every unbeliever will have to confess this at the great white throne before they're thrown into the lake of fire. They may not want to, but they will have no choice in the matter. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice now. Why? To the glory of the Father. To the glory of the Father. Because Jesus Christ humbled Himself he was obedient to the will of God the Father to an infinite degree, to the maximum suffering imaginable by any creature. God Himself undertaking this on our behalf. To the glory of God the Father. What other than the glory of God the Father could have motivated Jesus to do that? Nothing. Only the glory of God the Father could have been infinite enough to motivate the infinite humble obedience that he expressed on the cross. And so, the uh, absolute universal testimony of this is uh, the magnification of Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. To the glory of the Father. How could you possibly magnify Christ without glorifying the Father? I and the Father are one. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, this is what we get into. And, and right here in John 14, the disciples were struggling with that. Philip's denying, we haven't seen the Father. Show us the Father. It's enough. And John said, uh, Jesus says, have, have you been with me so long and you're asking such a stupid question? All right. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you glorify me, you're glorifying the Father. And so the Father's grace, eternal plan of the ages for the eternal maximum glory and honor and blessing of Jesus Christ, through that, what ends up happening? It's the glory of the Father. Because I and the Father are one. All right. So, we want to, we want to consider that. Also, we've we got to consider that this is an immediate glory. Point B. Immediate glory. Point B, immediate glory to God the Father and God the Son transpires when the Son departs to be with the Father. That's verse 33. And when those in Christ await their following the Son to the Father in heaven. That's verse 36. So point B, immediate glory to the God the Father and God the Son transpires when the Son departs to be with the Father, and when those in Christ await their following the Son to the Father in heaven. In other words, the church age. <laughs> Described not in Pauline fashion, but the church age described in a, uh, a foreshadowing by Christ here in the night in which He's betrayed. The sun is departing. The, the disciples will follow, but not yet. They will follow, but not yet. And this is exactly why the impact of I go to prepare a place for you is, is so special. Because it's in the Father's house that He's going to prepare this place. And this is immediate glory. You know, the whole interaction between earth and heaven and what we bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. What we loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Um, our, our role as the royal family of God, we're ambassadors in this world. What we do here on earth is a reflection of what has already been decreed in heaven. Of what our Lord would have for us to do. Of what His Father would have for Him to do. And He puts that into effect here on the earth through us. The idea that we're already laying up our treasures in heaven. The idea that we're already fixing our, mind, our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in heaven, right? Since we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. We're already participating in the heavenly economy. We're buying from Him gold that's refined. We're buying from Him eye salve to anoint our eyes. We're buying from Him the garments that we're wearing. We participate in the heavenly economy. We, uh, we operate in the heavenly courts, which just keeps us from being judgmental towards one another, right? All we do is just leave it in the hands of God's justice. And we do that as a heavenly function. And so what we do bears immediate glory. Immediate glory. Our prayers are filling golden bowls of incense. It's immediate glory. When we, uh, instead of uh, 
Instead of panicking over a test, we gather together with prayer. What are we doing? Immediately glorifying the Son and immediately glorifying the Father. Because there are angels up there that are taking those bowls of incense and pouring them forward on the heavenly altar. It's immediate glory. But it requires an interaction between earth and heaven that can only take place with a glorified son seated at the Father's right hand. None of this could have taken place prior to the, in the Old Testament. You say, well, Jesus was at the Father's right hand in the Old Testament, wasn't he? Was he? he? He was in the beginning with God, yes. But seated at an exalted place of authority, glory, and dominion, I say no. Because Philippians says no. It's for this reason that he was given a name. It's for this reason the Father said, sit at my right hand. When did that invitation to sit at my right hand come? Not until the Son of Man was presented to the Ancient of Days. We're going to prove that from Daniel chapter 8. Or Daniel chapter 7. So, a lot of this is, is uh, of course, mystery still. And the disciples don't know of, of any of it on this night that he's teaching it. And how much does he know himself? He's speaking in a prophetic utterance here. Does, does he in his humanity, of course, omniscience knows everything. But, but Jesus, an Old Testament prophet, does he in his humanity know all of the, the things of the, of the pending church, the pending bride? I don't think so. All right. Unless it was on this night that the, the mystery was unveiled to, to Jesus. And then he communicates what he's allowed to communicate in, in chapters 14 through 17. All right. And then thirdly, the new conditions of immediate glory Demand a new commandment. Reciprocal love. The new conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment. Reciprocal love. This commandment to love one another is not a commandment for Israel. It's a commandment to the church. And when you apply this, when you obey this commandment, you're producing that immediate glory for Jesus Christ and for God the Father. The new conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment, namely reciprocal love. That's verses 34 and 35 of John 13. We love one another. As we do, we're producing immediate glory for Jesus Christ and for God the Father. A brother does you dirt. And instead of eye for an eye, law mentality, you, uh, you respond in grace and sacrificial love. And when you do, you just glorify Jesus Christ and God the Father. Immediately. Immediately. Because remember, our interactions are both earthly and heavenly. And the angels in heaven see this. It's immediate glory for Jesus Christ and God the Father. All right. Point two then. The dispensation of angels. I'm sorry, dispensations, plural. 
the dispensations of angels, man, and Israel could never envision a stewardship with immediate glory to the Father and to the Son of Man. They all looked forward to a promised glory. They all looked forward to a promised glory. The dispensations of angels, man, and Israel could never envision a stewardship with immediate glory. I think this was a huge part of Satan's downfall. Future glory, he wanted it now. I want to sit in that seat. Father says, you're not entitled to that seat. (laughs) To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? Certainly not to Satan. Okay. Looking forward to a future glory. Likewise, uh, the dispensation of man, sometimes called the Gentile age, or the dispensation of Gentiles. From Adam to Abraham, they didn't have any idea of present, immediate, heavenly glory to the Father and the Son. Enoch prophesied that the, that uh, God would come with many myriads of myriads and execute wrath and vengeance upon the ungodly for all the ungodly things they've done in an ungodly way. But that was all future. Israel was looking future. The only, I think the only present glory that Israel ever dwelt, dwelt on was the, the glory of the temple on earth, the glory of the Davidic throne. They, they, maybe they came up close to the Father's glory in the sense that the Shekinah resided in the temple. But that was just glory of the Father for what it is that, that came to reside in Israel. Certainly it wasn't the glory of the Father and the Son of Man. They, that was still future in their, mind, in their prophecies. They all look forward to a promised glory. And here's, I mentioned we we're going to get into Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at it. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7 is a fun chapter because it keeps going back and forth between earth and heaven, earth and heaven, earth and heaven. Amazingly so. For a stewardship that doesn't have the interaction like we have between earth and heaven, earth and heaven, earth and heaven. But this is the way that Daniel's prophecy is written. Portraying the events of the tribulation and what's happening on earth while other things are happening in heaven. And... um, Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, plural, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, singular. Why do we have multiple thrones and only one judge seated? His vesture was white like snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. The books were opened. And we're left with this puzzle because how can we have all these thrones and only one seated judge? 
Daniel never finds out. The book, the, this Old Testament book never unfolds it. We, if, if all we have is Daniel, we're clueless. But fortunately, we have the New Testament. We understand, wait a minute. All judgment has been given to the Son. So at the end of, uh, at the, uh, end of time, it's not going to be the Ancient of Days judging. It's going to be the Son judging. The Son who, started, who, who, amazingly enough, starts to look more and more like the Ancient of Days by the time you get to Revelation chapter 1. He has white hair too. <laughs> okay? And then uh, all judgment has been given to the Son, but the Son is not alone anymore. The Son now has a body, a bride. And the Son shares His judgment with His bride. Do you not know that we will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And so because you and I have a New Testament framework and you and I can go into Revelation chapter 20 and we can see the multiple thrones. Hold your finger here and look at Revelation chapter 20. And we can read how um, in verse 4, I saw thrones. And they sat on them. Aha! Multiple thrones and they are seated. Unlike in Daniel, now they're seated. And judgment was given to them. Aha! And we're okay with this. We don't, stop, we don't, we don't argue and say, but I thought all judgment was given to the Son. Yes, all judgment was given to the Son. But the Son is not alone. Because why? Because the Son has a body. The Son has a bride. We are in Christ. We will judge this world. We will judge the angels. So I'm not at all surprised to read, hey, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. You see why we're, we're cool with this now. But back in Daniel 7, none of that's known. There's no framework to understand body and bride of Christ or judgment given to the Son even. All we have in Daniel 7 is God the Father, the Ancient of Days. But still, amazingly enough, Thrones were set up. What's with all the extra seats? Right? If the Ancient of Days took his seat, okay. What's up with all those other seats? Daniel's not going to mention that. All right, now, then uh, another scene back on earth in verses 11 and 12. Um, Antichrist, the boastful horn, and the massacre of saints. And then how he himself is laid hold of. All right. And then uh, verse 13, back to heaven again. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom. Not to the boastful horn, not to Antichrist. The dragon exalted his beloved son. God the Father humbled His beloved Son. And between those two sons, one of them is condemned for all eternity and one of them is exalted for all eternity. Alright. To Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right. So, it's interesting. I, I skipped over verse 12. I should have read that. But in verse 12, their dominion was taken away. Let's see. 
the whole structure of Antichrist, the Ancient of Days condemns it, rejects it, ends it. The beast loses his dominion. Jesus receives his for all eternity. It's a wonderful contrast here. All right, so anyway, looking forward to a promised glory, looking forward to a point when the Son of Man, and why, why was it that Jesus kept talking about Son of Man? Ooh, the Pharisees got mad over that title. Right? They say, who is this Son of Man? Okay. And Jesus, man, you better figure it out. You're missing the whole point. Okay. There's something more going on than just his plan for Israel or his plan for redemption, the atonement of sin, the, the plan for unbelievers to receive eternal life. How about the plan for the maximum eternal glory of God the Son because of the infinite obedience and then the maximum eternal glory of the Father in the Son? How are those things going to be made possible? They're going to be made possible with this obedience of the Son to the Father. Such a bigger picture than we typically think about. All right. Here's an important note. We'll close with this. <clears throat> Jesus Christ does not violate the mystery of the church. Jesus Christ does not violate the mystery of the church, which is not unveiled until after Pentecost. It is clear. The church is not unveiled until Pentecost. I didn't include Ephesians in this, but the mystery was not revealed until it was revealed by the apostles and prophets in the church age. He delivered this last speech and intercessory prayer to bewildered disciples who would not comprehend any of it until the unveiled mystery enables them to do so. I shouldn't make that enabled. Keep my tenses the same. He delivered his, this last speech and intercessory prayer to bewildered disciples who would not and could not comprehend any of it until the unveiled mystery enabled them to do so. They don't even have the Holy Spirit yet to enable them to understand what he was talking about when he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he will equip you to understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sending you the Holy Spirit. <laughs> See how that works? <clears throat> Let's grab these real quickly and then you'll, we'll let you go. They're all in John. And, I, and I, I like this. this. This is key, I think, because this, uh, you know, John wrote his gospel. This fourth gospel comes decades after the synoptic gospels. And, and the, the church needed the gospel of John for a lot of reasons. But notice how this comes out here in this, in this record. John 2.22 when he talks about uh, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, no Old Testament believer is going to know that because no Old Testament believer has read 1 Corinthians 6.19. 
But John, writing this gospel decades later, half a century later, okay, he has read 1 Corinthians 6.19, and his readers have read 1 Corinthians 6.19. Church-age saints, a half century into the church age, understand the body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. And the word which Jesus had spoken. In other words, what this verse is saying is that they had to put things together afterwards. They only understood things with hindsight in a lot of cases. And specifically when it comes to mystery doctrine, they required the Holy Spirit. John chapter 12 and verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. (laughs) In other words, it took the church age, it took hindsight, it took fulfillment in order to understand how Old Testament messianic prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. Your king coming humbly, seated on a colt. All right, so it's after the fact that in reflection that New Testament unfolds the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, We're going to see this again in chapter 14. This is coming up. Chapter 14 and verse 26. Twenty five says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. You may not grasp it tonight. You probably don't. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit gets here. All right. Likewise, chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You're not equipped to deal with it. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, including mystery that's not yet unveiled that I can't tell you about. (laughs) For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. Here's this immediate glory again. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. See, Jesus came not to teach his own message, but to, to deliver everything the Father gives him. And now here's the Holy Spirit taking everything that the Father has given Christ. He's now given the Father and the Son. You see that next step? Yeah, we'll build on this next week. Important to note, he's not violating the mystery of the church. But he is giving them a series of messages that they will understand once the mystery is unveiled. And so we can approach these chapters on a church age basis and we have to. We absolutely have to. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Help us to study to show ourselves approved. Help us to understand this truth as it relates to the church. In your house are many dwelling places. And yet, our dwelling place was not there at the time Jesus gave this message. He has since gone to prepare it. And I ask, Father, that those preparations might soon be over. That uh, they would be complete. That he could utter an additional to tell us die finishing our our dwelling place 
and that the Lord, that you, Father, might send him to take us home. Father, might it even be today, we thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.